That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi there, and welcome to The Water Cooler. I'm Sophie Mann, sitting in for David Brody, who, like so many Americans, is currently snowed in somewhere in the Midwest. Over the weekend, the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump wrapped up with a final vote to acquit the former president of the claim that he incited an insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. The yeas are 57, the nays are 43, uh, two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty. The Senate judges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the article of impeachment. The final vote count was 57 to 43, which included seven Republican senators voting with their Democratic colleagues to convict the former president. Of those seven, perhaps the biggest surprise was North Carolina Senator Richard Burr, who had initially voted that the trial was unconstitutional at the outset of the proceeding. This holiday weekend, President Biden also addressed the nation on President's Day after arriving back from Camp David, where he spent most of the holiday weekend with his family. Biden will now spend this week promoting his COVID-19 relief package. His first stop is a town hall event with CNN in Wisconsin this evening. Now we want to bring on ABC political director Rick Klein to break down some of these stories a little more thoroughly. Hi, Rick. How are you? Hey, Sophie. Great to be with you. Good to have you here. So, Rick, I wanted to get your thoughts first and foremost on, you know, impeachment is over. It's all wrapped up. We are now eyes forward to 2022. Um, Republicans are thinking about the House. They're thinking about the Senate. I wanted to get your thought, um, especially after that 57 to 43 vote this weekend, on what, what seems to be a schism in the Republican Party, uh, the Republicans who are standing behind Donald Trump, but really those who are vehemently not standing behind Donald Trump and actually want to move about as far away from the Trump era as they physically can. So I just love to hear sort of where you think the party stands. Yeah, Sophie, it's, it's fascinating because you have those seven Republican senators that voted to convict. Uh, that's 14 percent of the Republican conference in the Senate. Uh, we had a poll at ABC News with Ipsos out just yesterday, taken right after the impeachment vote on Saturday. 14 uh, percent of Republicans nationwide think he should have been convicted. So you're seeing it play out uh, nationally, you saw it play out in the House where 10 members, including a top member of leadership and Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, voted to to impeach these seven. These seven Republican senators, I think, come at it from different directions. Some of them are retiring. Uh, others uh, just represent political brands that are uh, distinct already from Trump. Uh, so it's not necessarily a declaration of independence, but it is, I think, a pretty strong statement about where they think the party should go. And there are major differences of opinion uh, now in the aftermath of this trial about whether to to stand by Trump, whether Trumpism is the party's future or whether the party needs more of a clean break uh, for the midterms next year and for the next presidential cycle in 2024. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, you mentioned Liz Cheney and sort of the, the lawmakers we've seen moving away from President Trump, who have been, you know, gaining a lot of media traction, media attention for doing so. I think one question I have for you is, do you think there's a chance? I mean, because we see that President Trump is still polling relatively popularly with the Republican Party, 
Do you think that maybe the sort of anti-Trump faction is overrepresented in Congress relative to the actual coalition of voters that are the Republican base? Yeah, I mean, look, that, that poll is, is is right, and it's almost exactly right. I mean, look, if 86% of Republicans want to stand by Trump and 14% want to stand against, that makes President Trump very, very popular among the Republican base. And seven out of 50 is actually not a huge number, any more than two out of the roughly 200 uh, members of the, uh, of the House of Representatives. It is a minority. Uh, it's a distinct minority. It's a real minority. Uh, and I think even inside of districts, they might not be necessarily reflecting where Republicans are. I would venture to guess that uh, for most of the Republican senators uh, and the House members who voted to convict, um, that does not go over well with just Republicans in their districts, in their home states. But in the broader electorate, yeah, I mean, we, we've seen pretty clear majority support for conviction of President Trump, even though he's already out of office, uh, notwithstanding that argument. Uh, and I think that is that's reflected also in, in where they see the party going. And so I don't I actually think the representation is fairly accurate in terms of where the country is, which is not to say that the Republican Party is ready to dump Donald Trump. They're not. I mean, clearly not. Eighty six percent is a pretty good number. But you keep in mind that uh, President Trump's approval rating in the Republican Party was well into the 90s for most of his time in office. So there definitely are Republicans who've given up on him. It's just the, the party uh, as a whole certainly is not. Yeah, I think it'll be really fascinating to watch sort of what happens with him out of office, off Twitter. Now that the impeachment proceeding is over, he, in theory, won't be in the headlines quite as much. But so that sort of segues nicely into the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, President Biden this week is sort of, in a sense, dealing with his administration's first week that is not, you know, overshadowed or encumbered in any sense by by President Trump, by January 6th, by the impeachment trial. So what, what is some of what we can expect to see from him this week, given that it's his yeah, moment it, to shine? You're exactly right, Sophie. And the White House recognizes that the last week was basically lost. And in fact, the first, the first couple weeks of the Biden presidency were overshadowed by dealing with the fallout from the last uh, president. Uh, and impeachment was the most tangible aspect of that. And, but clearly, there were a lot, of, a lot of people around Washington who were still dealing with the, the consequences of of Trump having left and under left having left under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now Biden gets a much clearer playing field. And I think uh, this is the, the first two times he's going to be out of Washington on official business, both coming this week. Uh, today is Wisconsin. It's Michigan on Thursday. It's COVID, COVID, COVID in terms of his push. He's looking for a COVID-19 bill to, to be bipartisan, to try to find ways to get Republicans to work with him. Uh, but the politics of this have been quite a bit scrambled by impeachment. And I think you're seeing Trump's shadow the way it looms over the Republican Party and over politics more broadly is still something that the Biden White House is going to have to deal with. I think that's I think that's exactly right. So as you said, tonight, uh, Biden is going to be in Wisconsin talking about covid at a CNN town hall. What, in your estimation, are some of his best arguments and def like bipartisan defenses for this bill that he kind of has to now sell to Congress, which is not in session this week, but will be resuming at some point to sort of get the legislation actually through? Yeah, the argument that you're hearing from President Biden and from the White House uh, is that it already is a bipartisan bill because it has bipartisan support among uh, among not just voters in polls, but also uh, local elected officials, mayors, governors and the like. Uh, it doesn't have bipartisan support as of now in either the House or the Senate. Those are the votes that ultimately matter. But I, I think you're seeing the Biden White House try to use public opinion as a uh, as a bit of an argument in this to say, look, the, the country recognizes the severity of covid. They recognize that President Biden was elected to deal with the pandemic uh, and that uh, in their view, you really can't do too little. The only danger is, is in, is in under, uh, undervaluing the importance of a major package. Uh, and I think we've also seen a clear message from the White House that uh, they'll do this 
on a party line vote if they need to. They'd rather have Republican support if they can get it, but they're not going to let that stand in the way of a deal. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch, given that, you know, President Trump was twice over able to pass uh, COVID legislation, and it, it sort of wasn't his big first 100 days push. Um, well, heading south briefly, I want to talk to you about Georgia. Uh, sort of a big headline uh, yesterday night was that um, former single-term senator David Perdue filed some paperwork um, indicating that he may very well want to run against Raphael Warnock in the two in the 2022 Senate election for that, which would be for the full six-year um, term. What do you think about this? Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting development. Um, I think there's a lot of Republicans that would like to see that happen, if for no other reason that uh, the field would probably unite around him. One of the problems that Republicans had, not in that race, but in the other uh, the other Senate race that was up uh, last year, was that uh, there was such a divided party. Kelly Loeffler, who was appointed for that job, uh, continued to engage in a very spirited primary fight against uh, Congressman Doug Collins. A lot of folks view that as one of the contributing factors into into ultimately that defeat. Uh, Senator Perdue outperformed Senator Leffler in the runoff. Of course, mm -hmm. they both lost. They both fell short. Uh, but he is viewed as someone that could maybe crowd out some others. He is well-funded. He is well-known. He is generally well-liked. And the thinking among many Republicans is that the midterm year is going to be a different electorate than this presidential year. They feel like they can turn out voters in a different way and maybe not against a particular person at the top of the ticket. President Trump losing Georgia, as well as the Republican Party losing both of those seats, not having Trump at the top of the ticket. The, the hope among some Republicans is that we'll leave them in a better spot in the midterms in Georgia, an absolutely critical pickup opportunity. They'd love to bring a former senator uh, back into office next year. Purdue, though, is one of the few uh, Georgian Republicans who was not an enemy of President Trump, you know, in, in President Trump's estimation, by the end of the 2020 cycle. So, I mean, he, uh, the former president has spoken a lot about how he's going to be in Georgia fighting against Governor Kemp, who we mm -hmm. think will probably be challenging Stacey Abrams and against Brad Raffensperger. But possibly he'll be there, you know, campaigning for um, Purdue. So do, do you feel like that'll be a, a helpful thing or a hurtful thing? Well, if, if the past is prologue, it's, it's not good for Republicans. That was something that they dealt with uh, continually in that runoff race to know that President Trump was attacking the governor of the Republican secretary of state right to the end. Governor Kemp is also up uh, for, for reelection on his mm -hmm. own. Uh, there's some talk about maybe Stacey Abrams running for that, uh, that office again. Uh, regardless, though, it's going to be some mixed messaging for Republicans. If President Trump continues to, uh, to, to rail against Georgia Republican elected officials, it's going to be hard for him to continue to make the argument that, yeah, you should elect this guy but not these other folks. Uh, and a lot of those folks continue to think they've been maligned by the president. Uh, they like the president. They were loyal to him up to the moment he stopped being loyal to them. I think that's, yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, it will, it'll be definitely an interesting thing to see whether, uh, you know, President Trump's tacit endorsement will end up helping um, will end up helping Purdue and sort of what damage it could potentially do to somebody like Governor Kemp, who really was uh, a fan and supporter of President Trump right up until that last minute and, you know, is sort of a, a, a ticketed conservative in a similar style to President Trump, who defeated Abrams closely last time. Um, and if she's running again, you know, she has this major, major coalition behind her. Uh, just you're in 30 seconds. What do you think um, Abrams is thinking right now? Well, look, she's riding a, a wave of national publicity around all of this. Uh, a lot of a lot of folks credit her and her turnout operation with what Georgia was able to become. I know she's going to want to capitalize on that in some way, 
uh, shape or form. Whether that's running or not is going to be her decision, but a lot on the line in Georgia once again next year, no question about that. I know. It does seem like all eyes will once again be on Georgia in 2022. Well, thank you so much, Rick. This has been informative, as always. Um, we'll be back in just a few moments with um, Inside Elections, Nathan Gonzalez. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The water cooler. I'm Sophie Mann sitting in for David Brody. Right now on the program, we're going to bring in Nathan Gonzalez, editor of Inside Elections, to comment a little bit on some political patterns that we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks. Nathan, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So, Nathan, over the weekend, um, sort of as impeachment wrapped up, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham uh, made an appearance on a Fox show, I believe, to speak a little bit about who he thought the ultimate winner of the election, um, of the impeachment trial, rather, was. And what he came away with was saying that he thinks Lara Trump is actually the person who is walking away looking best here, specifically because he thinks that uh, Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina's vote to convict Trump has put her in a really nice position to uh, slide into the nomination for the 2022 Senate seat. What do you think about this? Yeah, well, uh, Senator Graham was connecting a lot of dots. You know, first of all, Senator Burr um, announced, previously announced he was not running for re-election. So this is an open seat. And the president's daughter-in-law is considering, you know, reportedly considering a run here. Um, now, just a few hours ago, I talked to former Congressman Mark Walker, a Republican who is already running in the race. And he is he wasn't particularly concerned about uh, Lindsey Graham coming out and endorsing uh, the president's daughter-in-law. And I think he kind of has a point. I mean, I'm wondering how many voters in North Carolina are wondering, oh, my goodness, I wonder what a what a senator in South Carolina wants me to do with my vote. But the bigger struggle for Congressman Walker, who's already in the race, is if the former president indeed comes out and uh, endorses her, her candidacy, because what we've learned in Republican primaries right now is that uh, the closer you are to the pre to President Trump, uh, the better you're likely to do. That makes a lot of sense. Um, if Lara Trump does, in fact, uh, decide to run in 2022, do you think it'll be part of sort of a larger um, pattern of the uh, Trump comeback? Might we see other members of the Trump family, uh, Don Trump Jr. perhaps, run? Um, is this part of, you know, Donald's effort to get back in the 2024 race? What do you think about all that? I think because President Trump is still still so popular with Republican voters and Republican politicians, a lot you're going to see a lot of uh, candidates or politicians try to be like him and try to um, replicate the blueprint that he has laid out. Uh, you know, there are limited opportunities for other members of the Trump family. I don't know, you know, if Don Jr. Wants to, he went to college in Pennsylvania. Maybe mm. he wants to run there. We've talked about a little bit on previous shows about Ivanka maybe challenging Senator Rubio in Florida, but. I'm really interested to see um, whether the, the true Trump coalition, I'll call it the Donald Trump coalition, is transferable to other candidates. Uh, because I think there's something about him, uh, specifically his personality and, and, and everything that comes with him that is unique to him and isn't easily transferable to other people, including other members of his family. 
Uh, but uh, I, you know, we have a long way to go before 2022. And, uh, you know, we stop to see what kind of legal troubles maybe the president, uh, how he navigates those in his time out of office, and if he's able to really maintain an organization uh, to kind of harness the energy that he has and transfer it to other candidates around the country. I think that makes a lot of sense, and it'll it'll be an interesting thing to see, though. Of course, Lara is, you know, a North Carolinian at heart and seemed to really know the people and um, the counties very, very well in and around uh, this past election. But pivoting slightly to a state all the way on the other side of the country, um, Nevada recently, uh, the state assembly is considering a bill to change their system of presidential primary contest from a caucus to a primary in a bid to uh, go earlier in the uh, in the Democratic uh, presidential contests. What do you think about this? Do you think that they're they're going to catch on, and will it work? Well, there, you know, this is one. The, the presidential primaries are one area where the the parties really have a lot of influence still, meaning the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee. Because if a state chooses to move up in the calendar, uh, they can be penalized. You know, for example, way back in 2008, Florida tried to move up its, it, it did move up its primary uh, in the process to try to be more relevant, and Democrats stripped away, uh, stripped away their delegates. And so, in Michigan, I believe, tried to do the same thing. And so, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating play. You know, this has the backing of former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and this is also in the shadow of Iowa. Remember, the Iowa caucuses were a debacle. And, and so I think changing from a caucus to a primary and moving up in the calendar is a certainly a strategic move by, you know, the politicians of Nevada to try to be more relevant in the process. But it's definitely even if they decide to do it, there's no guarantee that that's where they will stay or that they will have influence because that ultimately rests with the party officials. Well, so one of their key arguments in this bid is that they feel that the the Democrats of Nevada um, are comprised by a, a much more representative demographically group than states like Iowa and New Hampshire, who certainly over the past couple of election cycles have chosen early favorites like Pete Buttigieg, who, who have not gone on to fare particularly well with um, a larger, more diverse group of Democratic voters. Do you think that that's one of their stronger arguments? Arguments for why this makes sense to do. I mean, it does make it makes sense to me. I'm not sure how much my my voice matters in this, but Iowa, New Hampshire, going one two are two of the whitest states you can get, and particularly on the Democratic side, when the party is celebrating diversity, uh, it, it is it, it's not clear how 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 much longer states like New Hampshire, uh, New Hampshire and Iowa can hold those first and second slots. Remember, for those of you who have chosen to forget, you know, Nevada has been number three and then South Carolina was four. And Biden used Nevada. He didn't win, uh, but he he got he played second. And then South Carolina is what helped kind of push him uh, with some momentum and into the lead. But I, I guess if I if you nail if you had to nail me down, I would be shocked if Iowa and New Hampshire were still one and two uh, when all the death settles in 2024. That'll be really interesting to watch. Just really quickly in about one minute or so, it's always been really important to New Hampshire to be able to go first in the primary contest. Do you have any sort of sense of what mechanisms they'll try to apply to keep that number one spot? Well, I mean, again, as long as New Hampshire has uh, the ability to uh, control sort of the DNC 
and and uh, the people who are making that decision, then that's that's where they have to go. And and of course, it's important to them because they for more than a year or two years, they have every political reporter, every news outlet descending onto their state, spending money on hotels and food and uh, and all the candidates and their operations coming to the state. So it's not it, there's politics involved, but it's not just the about who which can't they're selecting. There's the the economics of the situation, and that's why states want to be first or second, you know, in those in those prime spots because you get all of the attention. Yeah, that'll be, I think, really, really interesting to see the little sort of intra-party duking it out among states. Um, can you imagine sort of this uh, kind of first in-state primary happening somewhere like Las Vegas? I don't know. I guess we'll see. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'll be back in just a moment uh, with more about 2022. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi there, and welcome back to The Water Cooler. My name is Sophie Mann. Um, right now, we're going to pivot all the way to California. Uh, on the program now, we have Ann Dunsmore, the campaign manager for Rescue California, uh, which is the effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. Hi, Ann. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So good. you've had a, a, a few very exciting days in terms of your campaign and your effort. Um, over the weekend, you guys breached the number of signatures needed to trigger a recall election of the Democratic governor. But also, the White House appeared to come out in an effort against what you're doing. Um, they hadn't weighed in previously, despite the fact that this has been a known campaign. But over the weekend, um, press, Soc press secretary uh, Jen Psaki tweeted, in addition to sharing a commitment to a range of issues with Gavin Newsom, from addressing the climate crisis to getting the pandemic under control, POTUS clearly opposes any effort to recall Gavin Newsom. So this is the first time, as I said, that the White House has weighed in publicly on this recall effort. How are you guys responding to this uh, to this backlash? Well, I do want to say that um, there's a tiny bit of a, uh, uh, a correction on the 1.5 million signatures that's how many we need valid signatures mm -hmm. and so uh, typically your validity rate if you're doing a good job is between 82 and 84 percent which means we actually really need to get to 1.8 million mm -hmm. uh, and our goal is 2 million now calling in the troops now they didn't just weigh in that stuff is is requested and orchestrated so it's clear to us that gavin newsom and his team reached out to the white house and said we need you to weigh in on this uh so they're calling in the big guns all that does is verify that they are in trouble he is in trouble and that we are a serious effort and we will get the signatures and we will have a recall do you, are you expecting to see any more public input from the White House or President Biden himself, maybe a trip out to California at some point in the future? You have to assume all that and more is true. 
Okay, yeah. very fair. Well, so we know what that looks like. <laughs> yeah, correct. Um, what are some of, in your estimation, I mean, it's it's obviously the platform of your effort, but just for the viewers, what are sort of the top three behaviors that Californians are so dissatisfied with in terms of Governor Newsom's performance that, you know, 1.5 to at some point, you know, hopefully 2 million, um, 2 million of them are, are making the effort to get rid of him as governor? Yeah, and it'll be more than that. I think it's a long list, as you know, um, but I think when you have the highest taxes in the country and the highest homeless rates in the country and the highest uh, jobless rates in the country and the slowest rollout of vaccine in the country, I think maybe one other state beat us, you're going to have trouble. Um, and, and I think really on top of all of that, uh, you now have a complete loss of trust, which really started to evaporate uh, in a very finite way uh, with the French laundry. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you're going to see further distrust uh, over this employment development department scandal with the $31 billion worth of COVID jobless benefits evaporating through crime rings um, originating in our jails and now directly related to guns on the street, increased violence, and now you've got the whole circle. Defunding the police, yet there's more crime because you distributed or you allowed to have that amount of money go back on the street. And by the way, that's over 20% of our annual budget. That's it's not monopoly money. That's money that's come out of the taxpayers, not just in California, but across the nation. That is certainly quite the list. I mean, as you say, I, I think based <laughs> yeah. on a lot of the reporting we've done over here at Just the News, uh, Governor Newsom has certainly been a leader um, in terms of the coronavirus pandemic by way of politicians who create rules that they then go on to flagrantly and publicly break. I mean, the French Laundry issue, you know, triggered a lot of a lot of backlash. And I mean, I think a really kind of tangible dip in his approval ratings um, from Californians, in addition, of course, to the fact that uh, Californian school children have uh, public school children rather have not returned to schools, whereas their private schools have one of the top return rates in the nation. Um, just right. very quickly, though, one important thing I want to ask you is, given that in your estimation, this uh, this this re-election or um, secondary election will be triggered. Who do you think is going to run against Governor Newsom? Do you have any idea of who the candidate is going to be? Well, we have several. Um, you know, there were 130 of them in, in uh, 2003, and a lot of them were incredible. You had, four, you had Mayor Richard Reardon of Los Angeles. You had iconic businessman and, and chairman of the Olympics, Peter Uperoth. You had Congressman Daryl Issa, Congressman Tom McClintock. Arnold didn't get in until the la you know, the night before. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so I think we already have John Cox, who was the nominee um, uh, three years ago, two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, you have former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner. There's rumors that Rick Grinnell is going to get in. Oh, wow. I think Congressman Doug Osi is looking at it. And I think Unlike last time, I think you're actually going to see some Democrats get in because at some juncture, when you've had a precipitous fall in your approval ratings like this governor has, clearly not having hit bottom, he's gone down 20 points since the third, third quarter of last year in two different polls. Um, and you've also already seen uh, uh, Democrats kicking his tires, um, one of whom is Cotty Petrie Norris, and it's typical. She won by maybe 300 votes, um, and she represents beach districts where surfers have recall Gavin Newsom on their surfboards. That's a part of the uh, demographic that you don't really view as being way too political. Um, so, you know, I think she'd rather keep her district than to defend his bad decisions. And I think that there are some people that 
um, may run. I think we're going to see a lot of surprises. I look forward to it. So you think that whomever decides to run, I mean, be they a Republican or a Democrat, but especially a Republican, given just, you know, how blue a state California, typically speaking, is, especially in its statewide elections, you think that they are going to have a, a really good shot to actually defeat Governor Newsom? Yeah, listen to this. I mean, in those two polls, they saw definite movement in the no party preference. Now, the no party preference category in California is huge. It's the top three. Democrat, Republican, and uh, no party preference. And we took a look at our signatures, unscientific, but we, we went out in the mail to three and a half million Republican households. And of the random sample that we looked at as signatories, 22% of them were no party pre preference and 10% of them were Democrats. So I think you're going to start seeing, and in those two polls, you started seeing him move to the upside down category of uh, approval versus disapproval. So the trend is is that um, the no party preference, the mad moms, I call them, they used mm. to be the soccer moms. Remember, everybody was like, oh, we got to get the soccer mom vote. Well, their kids aren't playing soccer anymore. Uh, and so now they're just mad. And when they get mad, they get even. And I think that's the thing you're going to start to see. And also the baby boomer demographic here is huge. The retired community seeing a lot and of I'm going to have to cut you off. We're running out of time, but thank I'm you so much. We'd love to hear from you again as your campaign continues to progress. Um, we'll be right back after a couple of short commercial breaks. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi there, and welcome back to The Water Cooler. I'm Sophie Mann. Now we're going to pivot to the subject of economics. Uh, to discuss this, we're going to bring in Liberty Professor Dean of Economics, fitting, Dr. David Bratt. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, Sophie. Good. Great to be on. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the sort of legislative hot topic of this week, uh, the Biden administration's COVID-19 $1. trillion relief package. Um, would you, for yeah. our viewers, just mind breaking down some of sort of the big ticket economic items we're seeing in this massive, massive piece of legislation? Yeah, well, the, the big idea is probably a third of it is, is going to workers who need it, right? So it's probably time to start targeting. I think our debt is already at 27 or $28 trillion, mm -hmm. right? Up from, it just snowballed. And so the, you know, the big area of contention is, are we targeting this toward people who've lost their jobs or just sending out checks again? Uh, and then the left claims that this is you know, stimulative to the economy and the left doesn't understand the, the economy uh, has been killed. And that's why we have to be, uh, show some grace to the people uh, that are hurting and, and are out of work because the government for the first time by fiat shut down the economy. And so the last thing we want to do, I think you're going to get into it also. I saw the uh, $15 minimum wage. That's, the, that's an ideal way to, to, again, hurt the small business person. Everything the left does is to accumulate political power, right? The neo-Marxists are full in charge. There, there's no talk about helping kids uh, in schools get ready to be in business. Uh, when you don't hear that, you wonder, well, what, what do they have in mind? And so 
what they have in mind is big everything, big tech, right? The big six tech firms are all lefties now. Uh, Bezos, Zuckerberg, Twitter, Jack, uh, all of them. They, their net worth, their market cap is bigger than all the European stock markets put together, just those six firms. So if the left is in such a hurry to do good and raise the wage, why don't they just raise the wage rate? Why do they have to go through the government to coerce everyone to do this? And there you get some sense of your answer, right? Everything is about accumulating political power. This bill is all about accumulating votes and political power. It's never about doing anything that helps the economy. Yeah, I think um, you made some good points there. Uh, I want to touch briefly on, as you said, the, the <clears throat> debate over the $15 minimum wage, which has been um, sort of a hot topic among various yeah. politicians sort of on both sides of the aisle. I think we have a tweet from uh, Senator Bernie Sanders I'd love to throw up. Um, yeah. Right. So he wrote recently, uh, Sunday, I suppose, a $15 minimum wage is not a radical idea. What's radical is the fact that millions of Americans are forced to work for starvation wages while 650 billionaires became over $1 trillion richer during a global pandemic. Yes, we must raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Um, so this is, I think, an argument we see sort of a lot from the left, which is to say uh, yeah. working for a minimum wage, which the federal minimum wage has not been raised in a number of years and is actually pretty low relative to sort of uh, local minimum wages, which I think that's also yeah. another argument is do we want to raise it federally or do we want state by state to decide sort of what cost of living looks like differently? But what I'm curious about is sort of from a more conservative perspective, what would you say to those Americans who, you know, work minimum wage jobs and are struggling to pay for basic needs, food, housing, children, sort of how does the right respond to that? Because it, it clearly, you know, holds some water. Yeah, well, the, the left always goes there, right? It's the, the Marxist critique. There's class warfare going on. America has the greatest upward mobility and track record of up, upward mobility in the world. That's why everyone wants to come here. So folks do start at the minimum wage, mm -hmm. uh, but then you move up. And there's no replacement for personal responsibility, right? If you ground your system as a nation state in some other principle than personal responsibility and freedom, uh, you're going to get a way worse outcome. And you see that around the world, right? I mean, do you, do you want to be Chinese with a, a guaranteed wage rate from the communists? Do you think they actually come through on their promise? And then the more telling part of Bernie's quote came at the end, all these billionaires. It turns out big business turned all Democrat this time. And if you don't, uh, the big state will come after you and make sure your business goes out of business. So you're taking the words of folks uh, who are putting political pressure on businesses right now across the board. All the billionaires are leftists right now. And if they want to raise wage rates because they're all on the left, well, just go ahead and do it unilaterally. Uh, but they're not doing it. So that, that gives you the, the big hint. Uh, and when it comes to the trillionaires, if you want to help the poor, break up the trillionaire firms. Every free market economist should be writing on uh, the, the, just the vast accumulation of power uh, across these industries, big banks, big airlines, big healthcare, big tech, big everything, right? Why is that? Even Walmart, uh, who, who, who should be a red state firm, is now in the hands of the left uh, on their messaging. Uh, and that's because the government loves big firms because they can control the big firms. Just a handful of firms, you can control them. Whereas if you break up firms, which in order to have free markets, you have to have a market, right? Mm -hmm. And then the first thing you learn in economics is on the supply side, the firms, 
you want a thousand firms competing against each other. Not one, that's called a monopoly. You want a thousand firms competing and then the consumer gets the best product, the most variety, the lowest prices and so forth. And that, that's totally, we don't have markets at all anymore. Uh, and we better get them back before this country slips away and our freedom slips away with it. One interesting thing about um, this proposition of the $15 minimum wage in the COVID-19 bill is that obviously restaurant industries, the hospitality industry sort of writ large has been hit among the hardest industries by the pandemic. Um, and it's sort of yeah. restaurant owners in general who are who are saying, you know, a lot of minimum wage jobs are in the service industry yeah. who are saying we really can't afford this in a good year. We can't afford this, yeah. especially now we can't afford it. Do you think the you know, the the restaurant industry is not a decidedly left or right industry. Do you think the left will sort of especially more moderate Democrats in Congress just very quickly before you have to go? Do you think that um, Democrats will be swayed at all by sort of uh, the hospitality industry saying, we're not sure we're going to be able to do this? I, I hope so. But again, they form into agreements with, you know, uh, representative, they're, you know, they're lobbyists <clears throat> and the, the, the voice of the small person never cuts through. And markets uh, are, are fascinating. They contain their own genius, right? So the key to restaurants is that, you know, if you let the market work and you don't punish it with a $15 minimum wage, uh, Americans are overwhelmingly generous and good, kind people. And I, from every story I've heard, everybody's tipping through the uh, stratosphere right now. They're tipping very generously. So let the business stay open and take care of the wage rate through American generosity. People are they know what the waitress and the waiter are making. Right? They know what the bus boys make. People are being Yeah, David, I'm so sorry. That. I have to cut you off. Um, but I think that you make some interesting points and we'll see how our legislators duke this out. Um, we will be back in just a moment. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, and welcome back to The Water Cooler. I'm Sophie Mann, and at this point in the show, it is time for... The Water Cooler. Poll of the Day. That's right. It's the poll of the day. So let's take a look at what we're looking at today. Um, today, we've asked, will giving the federal government more control over business and individual behavior be good or bad for the environment? Uh, respondents to the question opted to say 31% of them said that it will be good for the environment. 44% say bad for the environment. 11% say no impact. And 14% say not sure. This is sort of an interesting question to be asked as um, climate change becomes an ever more visible policy issue, especially in a Democratic administration. Um, you know, President Biden has appointed several versions of what he's sort of calling a climate czar to prominent White House roles. Uh, they've been giving a plethora of television conferences. So in addition to the fact that, you know, early in his administration, on the first day, as a matter of fact, we saw him cancel the Keystone Pipeline. 
um, a move that has brought him a little bit more flack, I think, than his administration ultimately thought they were actually going to receive. I mean, I think that they feel relatively comfortable with the media. And uh, this is, again, as I said, a, a popular issue, especially among younger voters. But they ran into a lot of trouble, as we've covered before, with um, union voters and union workers who said, those are our jobs. We need those jobs. We don't exactly know where else we're going to be going for those jobs. So I think it is quite interesting to see that at this point still, um, most Americans, or at least most Americans voting in this poll, think that it will have a negative impact not only on the actual environment, but on, um, on American jobs and livelihoods as well. Um, you know, it's just we need to sort of consider these things as we hear time and again that um, workers will be given new jobs in sectors that they have no formal training in, in big tech sectors, which we don't necessarily think of as, you know, culturally any better for society than, you know, coal mining and the like, despite the fact that they have different downsides, different upsides. Um, but hopefully this is something we'll, you know, get more clarity on as the Biden administration decides really which messaging will um, be most productive for them to move forward with. Uh, that's about it for right now. We'll be back in just a moment with Nick Ballacy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi there, welcome back to The Water Cooler. I'm Sophie Mann, and just now we're going to bring in Just the News senior congressional correspondent Nick Ballacy to talk about what's going on in our great Congress. Nick, how are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So you're here to talk a little bit about a story that broke last night, Monday evening. Four lawmakers wrote a letter to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi asking questions about the ongoing situation surrounding the Capitol breach on January 6th. What can you tell us? Right. So these lawmakers want some answers uh, from Pelosi on what happened prior to the January 6th riot in terms of security decisions and what steps were taken. Basically, if you look at what Devin Nunes is saying, he is the ranking member on the Intelligence Com Committee, and he was part of this letter. And he's saying that, look, Pelosi's the mayor of the Capitol. That was what he was calling her because she's in charge of the House of Representatives. And he's saying that, she needs to answer exactly what she knew and when she knew it. Was she briefed on the decisions that were being made behind the scenes before the January 6th riot took place? And Nick, this has so something go, to do with the sergeant at arms of the Senate. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So the sergeant at arms, they would also be part of this decision on the House and Senate side in terms of providing security. But... Pelosi, as the House Speaker, she would be part of that process. I've heard this from several sources of mine on Capitol Hill saying that there's there's no way that she wasn't part of it, at least her staff in some way, 
in terms of the decisions that were made in advance. And also, when you go to the Senate side, McConnell would have also been likely part of the decisions that were being made. And what's interesting here is when you look at the impeachment process and the trial that took place, a lot of the House impeachment managers, the Democrats, were saying a lot of the violence before January 6th was foreseeable. That was, was a term that they kept using. Yeah, over I was and going over to again. say it's interesting that even during all of last week of impeachment, we didn't get any more answers on exactly what congressional leaders knew and when. Well, Nick, we're about wrapping up the show here, but thanks so much for joining us. Um, everyone, we're really hoping that David Brody will be back tomorrow. Just kidding, he will 100% be back tomorrow. We will see you then on the water cooler with another great slate of guests. Until then, have a great night, stay safe, and stay warm.